The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm so thrilled to be here every week sharing with you stories of some incredible women from across the country who are doing great work. Um, Quick note, I just got a last-minute text from Dr. Beth Dupree, and she will be unable to join us this afternoon. She has been called into surgery, um, and as I always tell her, patients come first. So uh, we won't have her uh, chatting with us this afternoon, but we do have two other stellar women with us this afternoon, and I'm looking forward to talking with both of them. Uh, this is the week that our contributor, Tish Squalero, will be joining us. Tish, again, is the CEO and founder of Candor Consulting. She is the author of Head Trash, and she is also CEO of The Roadmap, uh, which we're going to learn more about this afternoon. And waiting in the wings is our special guest, Laura Rittenhouse. Uh, Laura is founder and CEO of Rittenhouse Rankings, and she is an author as well. She is the author of Investing Between the Lines, um, which is an incredible book uh, endorsed and recommended by Warren Buffett. And um, she has a company that um, evaluates Fortune 500 companies, their financial and cultural integrity, and has a revolutionary method, which she developed, which we're also going to be talking about in just a few minutes. So um, first, I'd like to welcome Tish to the show. Tish, thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I know that you are in Washington. Is that correct? I am. You're always I'm on the road. DC. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I am in the road all the time. I hope you're. I hope you're having a good trip. Great trip. Great clients. Everything's great. Thanks. Good. So, listen. Last last month we talked a little bit about um, learning your style. And trying to determine, uh, once you determine, I should say, what, what that style is as far as how you work and how your mind thinks, um, what is going to be your roadmap for success following that? So I know that this afternoon you wanted to talk more about acting on roadmap. And, um, you know, once you have the information that you've determined through the program, what are you going to do with that? So, Let's start, you know, the first question I wanted to start with you, because I think this will be really interesting for the listeners, is how did you, um, how did you struggle or, or what were your weaknesses, I should say? And once you determined them, how did you use that knowledge in, in finding your own success? Sure. You know, one of the things that we started with, um, with our program together was really to outline that three-step approach in accomplishing the goals you have. The first one was really to assess who am I, right? So in my career path, I had to figure out my way, who was I, how I responded to things, what my strengths, and where are the areas I had to work on. So that was part of our first um, show together, which was know yourself, right? Know where you want to go, know a little bit about yourself, 
And for me, my knowing is that I, I'm a pretty aggressive, assertive person that really likes to make sure I'm always on the go and accomplishing my task list, as I call it, things that I'd like to see accomplished. The second part was to put into action some plan as to, okay, what are those things that we now know about ourselves and marry that to what we want out of life or out of our career or out of a relationship and kind of map out what that looks like and what I call a plan because the key to success is having some sort of plan that you can follow and adhere to and stay consistent with. And the last is really, you know, for me, um, the action, right? So I figured out who I was over the course of the last several years. Um, some of it eye-opening, some of it I kind of knew already. I put a plan of attack together for myself, right, that I have this great wish list, which I'm sure all of us do. You know, every New Year's we kind of set out that list of everything we want to accomplish that year, and then by, like, April or May we've kind of changed it. Mm-hmm. Well, this act, that last part, well, that's the part that I think really matters the most in accomplishing what we set out. And for me, you know, my areas of struggle were always staying on track, right, because I am so focused on constantly doing and moving that you sometimes lose track of all the things you promise yourself to do and you have an unrealistic wish list. I have to remind myself of my priorities and then hold myself accountable to doing those things to completion. So for me, my struggle was completing what I started, right? I would start a lot of things and find a lot of great people to work with me to start them, but you have to also know how to complete them. So the act portion of my three-step approach is what I wanted to focus on today for people is what is that actionable? Accountable is really our hold ourselves accountable. And holding ourselves accountable is really our job. We can instill it in others to kind of be part of that by telling them what our goals are so that people can kind of check in with us. But the truth is when we look in the mirror, how are you going to hold yourself accountable to meet those those big goals we may have set forth or those desires that we want and not be quick to blame others as to why we're not meeting them or why we couldn't do those things. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. So what, you know, um, when you think about Head Trash, the book that you wrote, which basically is that kind of inner critic, you know, the, the voices in our head that um, perhaps keep us stuck and hold us back, um, what other forms of Head Trash might affect you in acting out your plan? So in other words, you mentioned one of your weaknesses is is, is being aggressive and, and perhaps that leads to trying to start a lot of different projects. Um, and not following through. But what what other forms of head trash are there? Sure. And, you know, at head trash to, to, to myself and my co-author, Tim, when we wrote the series, was really emotions. Our emotions are what really get in the way from us succeeding. Sometimes the emotion is positive and drives us to where we're going, and that's that healthy emotion. Then there are those healthy emotions that cross the line and become head trash, right? So, that's what Head Trash's whole concept was. Your emotions are a big driver for us in how we make decisions, how we execute, and how we deliver. So we have to be cognizant of what emotions get in our way. So for mine, when I did my theory on my Head Trash, it was anger, right? I never wanted to hear no. I never wanted to stop long enough to not achieve what I needed to put on my checklist. And I would constantly just rush through stuff. And for, for others... One of the top that I've witnessed in the last two and a half years that we've been working on workshops and dealing with head trash with others is fear. And that's one of the biggest things that cause the 
step, three-step approach act to not proceed is we scare ourselves into thinking that, you know, making a mistake or not knowing all the right answers or we don't want to really start something without being sure where it's going to end. Fear causes us to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing I want to focus on for today is don't do nothing. That is a choice. And that's usually the wrong choice. And from what I witnessed on all the emotions out of our book, um, which there are seven, fear is the number one, both male and female, both entrepreneurs as well as, you know, successful within an organization. Fear gets in our way of having us do nothing instead of cautiously proceeding with things that allow us to have baby steps, you know, smaller bite-sized ways of, of, of confidence, meeting our goals. So when you put your actionable items together, you want to make sure that you're going to continue to do something and act upon those things and not get caught up where you do nothing. Because when we look back and do nothing, we become very good at making excuses as to why we didn't do what we wanted to do. And many times we forget to blame ourselves. And I think fear plays a role in when we don't actually complete what we started out to do. And, you know, that doesn't surprise me, Tish. I would say that across the board, fear is probably the one emotion that every human being shares. And, um, you know, it's that emotion that keeps us from doing so many things and also affects our day-to-day decision-making. It does because it's a natural feeling to be to be uncertain and afraid, right? I mean, I will not want people to impulsively be jumping out and do things that, that you know, they don't make, you know, make a plan or sense with. But mm-hmm. but fear then also makes us very stifled and frozen, and that causes us to do nothing. You know, and that's how Roadmap um, really came into place, which is this e-learning software that really helps the young professional go from college to career. There's an anxiety and a fear that they have about heading into the workplace. And what we witnessed in working with so many young people who are really very capable and very willing to learn as, as what it's like to be a professional versus someone who's in school is fear stifles them to do nothing or to fight the system. And I think that's where building this preparation tool that we've created allows them to look at things in a more bite-sized, confidence-building way to achieve those goals that they want. And that was the whole purpose of building what we call the roadmap is so that we give people the opportunity to not be frightened by what is ahead of them, but to figure out a way to be prepared so that as you enter that workplace, as you look at that first job, as you leave college and become on your own, you have this roadmap of a plan so that you're prepared to handle certain things in life. Right. And, you know, preparation is always key to helping to eliminate fear, isn't it? I mean, when you're prepared, you are just less nervous. True. And I think that people forget that preparedness is what calms you down because it's work. But whenever you're about to go on an interview or if you're going to have a meeting with someone you've never met before, isn't it better to be prepared as to who that person is or know a little bit about them so you can start a conversation or if you wanted to have a job change in your career or go after that, that, that more senior role that might be a stretch for you, if you're prepared to have those discussions, if you're prepared to know what that role will actually entail, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable going after it. And that's why this preparation in preparing you know, young professionals for that life after college or that 
that first job out of high school is so critical, and I think that's kind of gotten lost along the way. It is about just giving you the roadmap of preparation because we forgot that the basics of preparing yourself actually give you confidence. That's right. That's right. And I, listen, I know that next month we're going to really get in, more into this um, this e-learning software that you developed, the roadmap. Um, is there one quick little, um, I guess, uh, thing that you want to mention about it that that our listeners can be prepared for for next month? Absolutely. And you know, it's it's part of this time of the season of gift giving and family. And I know in my life, I'm around a ton of parents who have, you know, college students or uh, there's children going out to get their first job or intern. And Roadmap was created for those young people to have that preparation. You know, as we're thinking about ways to help them, we're offering Roadmap right now on a free trial basis to anyone who's in that position, who's got a student who's entering the workplace or preparing for their senior year in college or getting ready for high schools last year before they go out and get that job or even a summer job, to go out and offer them this preparation tool at no cost as a gift so they can start to gain the confidence to enter that next stage of their life. Very simple. You go to learn.theroadmap.com. So it's Mm learn.theroadmap.com. You can offer it to any student. Any parent can go on it if they'd like. Anyone want to check it out? It's what we built to give folks that three-step approach, just like we've talked about over the last couple months. Know yourself, have a plan of attack, and then act on it. And I thought that since it's December and that time of year and we're going to see family and friends, it might be something you can offer your listeners as a way for them to start to prepare for 2016. That's terrific, Tish. I, I so appreciate that. And as the mother of a college student, um, I will be jumping right on that and making sure that my son Christopher um, goes through the program. He's He still has two years to go, but um, yeah, I want him to be as prepared as possible. And they're never too prepared, right? So I would That's think right. that even as, as early as you can get get folks started to really start to think about who am I? What is my plan of attack and how am I going to hold myself accountable? You can't miss if you have those as your actionable items. That's exactly right. And you know what? It's a perfect statement to, to bring on our guest for today. Holding, holding yourself accountable, I know, is something that Laura is quite familiar with and actually, um, you know, teaches. So I'm going to let you go. Feel free to hang on, Tish, if you would like to join the conversation with our guests this afternoon. And I'll put that information for the roadmap out on our website. That sounds fabulous. And happy, healthy holidays to all. Thanks, See Tish. You next month. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Um, so now we're going to bring our guest on uh, to the show. And, and we're so lucky to have her this afternoon. Our guest is Laura Rittenhouse. Laura is the founder and CEO of Rittenhouse Rankings. She is the author of Investing Between the Lines, a wonderful book, which it's important to mention was endorsed and recommended by Warren Buffett, someone who knows a thing or two about finance and business. Uh, Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So I want to dive right in because we have a lot to chat about. You and I have talked off the air um, about a couple of things, and I want to make sure that that we can get to all of them. So um, I want to start, of course, with your growing up years in Minnesota and give our audience a sense of who you are and where you came from. Thanks, Susan. So 
I was born in Minnesota. Um, that wasn't cold enough for my parents, so when I was about six or seven, they, they moved uh, to uh, a town outside of Buffalo, New York. And uh, there's a story they tell me. I, don't, I didn't quite remember this, but I think I was about six, and we had moved into um, a new house, and everyone was busy unpacking, and suddenly they realized that I was missing. I wasn't in the house. They couldn't find me anywhere. And they kept searching and, and uh, calling out. And then suddenly I turned up uh, at the front door. And they said, where have you been? And I said, well, I was, I was, I was ringing doorbells trying to find out if there was anyone I could play with. <laughs> you were adventurous then. I was adventurous and, and a seeker. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something I want to mention for our Philadelphia folks is that you're actually related to the Rittenhouses of Philadelphia, and Rittenhouse mm-hmm. Square is one of my favorite spots here in Philadelphia. Um, and is it true that you, you have an ancestor who made George Washington's first pair of bifocals? That's absolutely true. Uh, David Rittenhouse uh, was the grandson of Wilhelm, Rittenhouse, who, with his sons, came to the New World, uh, settled in Philadelphia. In fact, if you go to Fairmont Park, you can find the Rittenhouse paper mill. They came over, and before the Rittenhouses arrived, there had been no paper made in the in the colonies. So they created the first paper mill. The grandson of the uh, founder of the family in the New World went on. He was a self-taught scientist, astronomer, um, and, and actually made the first pair of bifocals that George, General George Washington wore uh, during the war. Um, in fact, I have a Xerox copy of a letter that uh, the general sent to David Rittenhouse thanking him for the bifocals, even though they, they, did, uh, they were a little tight around his nose. Oh. <laughs> uh, a, a candid comment. Right. Uh, but but it is after David Rittenhouse that many of the places in Philadelphia are named. That's that's really neat. That's that's a nice little anecdote that you can share with people. Well, I'd like to say I follow in a family tradition of bringing clear vision to our leaders. Oh, there you go. That that's a wonderful connection. Um, I, I know that you know part of you and and your interests lie in the fact that your mother was an artist and your dad was a scientist so you have a wonderful blend of two different ways to look at life that's correct uh and of course right you know very very different uh if you look at um the the you know the interests the capabilities of someone who is very left-brained it's you're very deductive in your reasoning you're logical you're analytic uh, and that that was my dad. He was a chemical engineer. Uh, he helped to invent Bis- Bisquick when he was at General Foods. Um, and he went on to do marketing for a lot of large uh, energy companies. And my mother was an artist. Uh, she was an artist and a musician. She painted. Uh, some of her paintings are at the art gallery in, in Buffalo. Uh, she toured with the Buffalo Philharmonic. Uh, she played the French horn. Uh, that was when I was younger. And um, so they, they approach the world very differently. And, you know, sometimes that, that causes uh, collisions. But I think I've benefited from that, and I'm, I've, I have now come to realize that my, the methodology that I've developed to measure candor in executive communications 
is founded on this very principle that the best leaders are those who are able to access the capabilities from both sides of the brain. Mm, yeah, that that's interesting. Um, another part of your story, Laura, is is uh, a little uh, story that you told me off the air about when you were in first grade. Um, you actually struggled with your eyesight, and so that led you to learn uh, Braille. Um, talk about that story and, and how it shaped, you know, your motivation behind the work that you do. It's it's interesting, Susan. Um, the the uh, the point about uh, Tish was talking earlier about candor, and I think it's it's a concept that uh, I think frightens people and inspires people. And I want, to, I want to describe what that is, and I'll get back to the Braille story. So what, what, ins- what interests me is uh, many people go, well, they want to find the DNA of their lives. I look for the DNA of words. And uh, what I've come to believe, and I think this may trace back to my experience in first grade, is that words are the clothes for our souls. Words are incredibly powerful, and our, the choices of the words that we use every day are actually shaping our lives. So um, candor is defined in the dictionary. It it came from a Latin word, candera, which means to illuminate, to shine light into dark places. So it has the same root as the word candle. And when you think about that, um, compared to the word transparency, which is based on a a word that means how things appear, to look through them, which, again, is a good quality. But the qualities to be able to shine light into dark places means that you come from a a certain mindset, a certain um, set of principles, and a commitment to lead with both head and heart energy. So Braille, I think words have become so important to me because I was, whatever, six going on seven, and um, the the school, the doctors were concerned that my eyes, which were developing, were were weakening, and they they wanted to do some preemptory. Uh, I guess they had money in the budget. I don't know, but they decided to assign a Braille teacher to me. So while uh, I was also learning to read, um, I was uh, and, and sight. I was also learning how to touch and feel and and experience the physicality of words. And uh, looking back, what I think is impressed, what, what I'm impressed by is that I don't remember being afraid at that time, or at least I wasn't able to articulate it. Maybe I felt special that I was getting extra help, but I think it must have also been rather frightening to to think that I might lose my sight and, and that Braille would be the only way I would be able to read. So I think uh, it's interesting. And I think we all, when we look at our lives today, I think there's a lot to learn when we are able to go back, like lifetime archaeologists, and and try to, in the context of what we know today, to imagine what were the experiences that framed us and shaped us to become the person that we are today. That's exactly right, and that and that's what we try to do here every week. Um, I, I I think to me it's it's just so fascinating and interesting to to ask the question where you came from um, as opposed to what what you're doing today, uh, or it's equally as important, I should say. And it's interesting to me that you said that 
that experience you were not afraid of? Because my next question was, you know, did that lead to some fear for you um, as a young girl? Um, because it was, you know, it was something that was different, but yet you looked at it more um, as if you were special. Yes, yes. And I think that's that's a very interesting uh, element of fear. Um, as Tish was saying, you know, fear can be destructive and immobilize us. But at the same time, without fear, why would we change? Why would we want to do something different, be somebody different? Um, I think when I look back at my life and the big change moments in my life, they were all preceded by fear. And sometimes that happens because of external events, uh, you know, whether you're, you're, you're moving on in your life from school to a job or you're moving on because somebody very important to you has died or illness or, uh, you know, somebody's lost a job or even somebody's gained a job and you have to move. I mean, what, what I find fascinating when I read executive communications, for the most part, CEOs write about change as if it, as if it is something abnormal, that uh, abnormal and to be feared. And yet there's probably nothing, well, it's one of the few things in life that you can count on. It will change. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so and, it's your, your perspective of looking at it more in a positive way um, probably helps to eliminate, you know, the fear and anxiety that goes along with change. I have found that to be the case. It's taken a while to, to um, I think, be to not to be just aware of this, but to practice it in my life. So, for example, um, you know, when when you try things and they don't work out, um, you must, you begin to think, well, maybe I'm, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the situation or whatever. And now I entertain another possibility. Okay, so maybe it's time to change. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a sign, right? Um, well, it, you know, in speaking to that, I wanted to talk about your uh, transition back in, in the 90s, uh, leaving investment banking with Lehman Brothers to become an entrepreneur. So talk about change. That was a big transition in your life um, that took courage. And uh, my first question is what, you know, what precipitated your decision to do that? The um, that moment, I, I call that uh, the authentic crisis. <laughs> I, I I I think a lot of people go through lives and they never um, either choose to or they're not uh, invited to explore this. But I, I was at a point in my life I had had a very very successful career at Lehman Brothers on Wall Street. I loved what I was doing. Uh, I was very well compensated. Uh, I traveled on a, uh, around the world. I would go to London for lunch and fly back and watch the uh, northern lights from the corporate airplane. Um, I worked with really smart people. I enjoyed my clients. Uh, but something happened, two things. One, Wall Street changed. So when I joined Lehman Brothers, there, the ethic at the firm was very much uh, we're here to serve our clients. And uh, by the time I was feeling the urge to change, that had that had changed. So the ethic was more, what are you doing to serve the company, and how can your clients serve the company? And uh, I, that, just, that was contrary to the way 
I knew that business succeeded and and that that would uh, certainly work for me. So so that was the kind of a, 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 an incentive to begin thinking about other things. And then like I was at a point in my life, and um, I know other people have gotten there where you begin to ask yourself, whose life am I living? Am I living the life that I'm supposed to live, or am I living the life that I truly want to live? And the uh, as I explored this, it became clear that the life that I wanted to live, um, I didn't really know what that was, uh, but I figured it would have something to do with a purpose. And I'm a great believer in what I call the uh, thumbprint identity. And what does that mean? I also apply this to corporations. When I advise executives on their communications, I'll say every company has a unique thumbprint. There's something that makes it original and different from every other one. And the more that you can operate out of an awareness of that unique uh, character, uh, the more successful you're going to be because the more authentic you become. And similarly, if we all look at our thumbprints, uh, that thumbprint, nobody else in the world has it. So isn't that interesting? Maybe that means that I'm here for some purpose. But what is that purpose? And while I was on Wall Street, I was so busy and doing all these things. I never really had the time or even back then the interest. But I had reached a point where that became a very important question to me. And I knew that in order to answer that question, I had to leave uh, Lehman Brothers. And it was tough because there, nobody was asking me to leave. In fact, they were telling me if I stayed, I would be made a, a managing partner and so on. So it was very tempting. Um, and I remember the night before I decided to uh, announce my resignation, I began to get cold feet, and I called a friend, and I was on the phone, and I started to cry, and I said, I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? And, and uh, she just said, uh, Laura, hang up the phone and meet me at the Carlisle restaurant in 30 minutes. I'm taking you out to dinner. So I did that. We had dinner. I don't remember what I ate. Uh, I talked about all the fears I had, the uh, concerns, questions, and by the time coffee was served, I was feeling a lot calmer. And I finally paused, <laughs> and my friend Jean reached across the table, and she said, take my hand, we'll jump together. <laughs> Isn't that so often the case, right? You, Someone else gives you that boost of confidence to uh, to take that step. Um, Laura, I want, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to find out what happened next. Okay, great. We'll be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. 
Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and we're being joined this afternoon by Laura Rittenhouse. Laura is the founder and CEO of Rittenhouse Rankings, and she's also the author of Investing Between the Lines. And uh, just before the break, Laura was talking about um, a lunch that she was having, and I love the fact that you had a friend there that, you know, kind of coaxed you right out of that um that second guessing phase, I guess, and, and said, listen, you know, if you're feeling the need to make a change in your career, I'll help you do it. So what happened next, Laura? Well, I'd like to say, so I went in the next day. I announced my resignation. They were shocked. And uh, the experience was like jumping out of a plane without a parachute because a lot of people will – leave a job and have another one lined up or be very clear that they have a plan. I had no plan. I, I knew that if I was going to um, ex- do the kind of exploration that I felt was necessary to live the life I wanted to live, um, it, was, it, was a time, it was a time to have a space to create uh, kind of like a whiteboard or a white space on which I could create. And so that's what I did. And I spent um, a number of months traveling, meeting with people. One of the questions I would ask lots of people, many who knew me and some who did not know me as well, but I asked them, what are, what, what are my gifts? Because I figured that if I was using gifts that I had, which is more than just skills, but but uh, skills are things that you're very good at. When you are skillful and have a gift, it's oftentimes you know that because you've experienced flow, that uh, you just lose track of time because you're you're so um, you're feeling so connected to and engaged in the work that you're doing. It's something that you love. Yeah. And so uh, while this was going on. Uh, I had um, many of the clients that I worked with, the CEOs and and chief financial officers I worked with, would call me and say, listen, we still want to work with you. Uh, How can we do that? And so I began to help them set up uh, investor relations programs, Uh, investor relations, which is basically the uh, practice within a company to, to... create, I call it relationship management, of, of the owners of the company. Uh, and in, in effect, they're very, it's a very interesting role. I think it's one of the most powerful in a corporation because they're at the intersection of the internal world of the corporation and the external world of investment, of investors and their investments in the company. So it requires someone who can be um, both an insider and an outsider. 
and and be able to communicate between those. So I worked with them, and they developed lots of really interesting programs, many of which are carried on today in a lot of companies. So really, you were in a position to you know go right from uh, a company, a large company, Lehman Brothers, and and be a consultant because you had the expertise. Um, and and I know what some of your um, you know I know what your expertise is and and your talents. What would you say, Laura, are your gifts? that allowed you to do this work? One gift is a commitment uh, to transformation, um, which which is a big word, and I think it's kind of a scary word, but it uh, the way that, and I, we, we talked about this a little bit, uh, it gets back to what I said, how people are afraid of change. And... Uh, uh, one of the one of the things I did during that exploration period was I created a, a training course uh, for people, some of whom came from a church I belonged to, some of them were people I knew outside, colleagues, friends, and I called it Creative Transitions. And when you think about it, um, change is scary because if you don't know where you are and you've lost your balance and you're moving to some place, again, you have no idea where that is, that, that, that is... Uh, quite terrifying. But when we're transitioning, it means that, okay, we know where we are. We know where we are, and maybe that place no longer suits us for a variety of reasons, but we know that we're ready to move on to something else. We just don't know what that is. And so what I developed was a series of skills and um, mindsets that you could use as kind of um, equipment to make sure that you got the most out of that transition period and that you ended up in a place where it was going to be a lot closer to living the life you wanted to live and were born to live. So you would say you're, then you're com- one of your gifts is being comfortable with transition and change. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and I think uh, that also involves uh, a passion for creativity, um, so my mother was an artist, a musician. My dad was a scientist. Uh, people tend to think that artists are creative and scientists aren't. Of course, that's wrong. <laughs> yes. A lot of, a lot of scientists uh, have to they they have to explore frontiers uh, that uh, haven't been explored, and there's there's a lot of excitement and joy in that exploration. So uh, I like to think of it as uh, Kind of creating, paint, painting our lives. Yeah. What are the and, and and the instead of maybe paint and things that we use, we're using the experiences in our lives. We're using the emotional um, connections that we have with each other and with ourselves and with the world uh, as as some of the medium to shape and sculpt. Um, ourselves in the world and the impact that we can make in the world. That's a beautiful way to say it and and to look at it. Um, 
you, there's many things, Laura, that you're involved in outside of, of course, you know, your company. And one of them is as an advisor to the Nantucket Project Fellows Program. And I came across that in my research, and I found not only the program really interesting, but uh, Richard Saul Werman as well is quite an interesting gentleman. I wonder if you can talk about that program for a few minutes and, and what the mission is and why you decided to be a part of it. I, I certainly will. And, and perhaps after that, Susan, we could get back because I do want to talk about the, the, the power of words and the research that I've been doing. Yes, uh, absolutely. With yes. people, and and actually, that's how I got uh, in touch with uh, the the uh, Nantucket project. So, uh, where, after my book came out, Investing Between the Lines, I was invited by the um, website magazine museum, if you will, <laughs> museum of uh, it's called Big Think. Yes, and uh, they are in the business of making beautiful videos of lots of people in so many different walks of life who are bringing ideas and new ways of new ways of thinking, new ways of acting into the world. So they invited me to come and speak about my work in uh, creating a, a measure of candor in executive communication. And um, in fact, they ended up calling me the 21st century Orwell. <laughs> which, which I That's was a great a, title. Was a great, uh, a great accolade. Yes. But uh, one of the people I met there uh, introduced me to the um, Nantucket Project. Now, the Nantucket Project, I, sp- I spoke there last uh, two years ago, and this year uh, I began working with the Fellows Program. The Nantucket Project I call the Woodstock of Social and Political Transformation. And it's uh, it's only it's still new. In fact, uh, Saul Werman, who you mentioned, who was the original founder of TED Talks, he's been very involved in the development of the Nantucket Project. And um, it's basically a four-day conference that happens at the end of September on Nantucket Island, and they the the, the, the creators of the project invite uh, people very you know very famous very well-known people Tony Blair came last year Steve Wozniak um, Larry Summers uh, speaks there who had been the you know, head of the uh, economic or uh, during the during the crisis the economic advisors um, and uh, all these people come to to uh, bring their ideas, uh, their thoughts about where the world is going today, and then they they stay around so that you get to have conversations with them and uh, network with other people. It's it's a tremendous uh, opportunity to, uh, as, as Wayne Gretzky said, you know, don't look where the the puck is, look where it's going. Um, at the this at this year's meeting, I got to uh, I got to meet a company. That is uh, has has um, taken the DNA of cows and is making leather from the cow DNA, so they don't have to it's real leather, but they don't have to kill the animal to make the leather. Wow, that's fascinating. So, so they're doing all these things, and uh, in order to scale up the program, uh, they've created so, the, something called the Fellows Project, and uh, that. People apply. Uh, we have got, I believe it's 14 fellows now. And these are people that are all doing incredible things in the world. 
for example, there's a woman who uh, recently developed a disease that's, uh, that's like MS, and she says, I'm going to use my body as lemonade. You know, after that old saying, you know, if life gives you lemons. Yes. And so she's, she's uh, creating um, a collective of people who are dedicated to bring fashion into the world of the disabled. Wow. What, so, a, what a wonderful uh, organization to be a part of, Laura, the, it, you know, the people that you're getting to meet and, and learn about. Well, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Isn't this what I was hoping for when I jumped out of that airplane without a parachute? Yes. <laughs> I could never have planned this. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's, you know, one of the things um, I want to get, you know, into the, your work uh, and your book, and one of the things that you've said is that words are as important as numbers to success. And how true is that? And, you know, when you're working with investors and clients, uh, one, of, one of your quotes I thought was interesting. You said, while no one can predict the future, our words and actions will create the future. Tell me what you meant by that. It's so interesting, Susan. So uh, when, when you speak to very serious investors, uh, they will often tell me, look, I am not going to consider the words of the CEO because words, who, how can you trust them? I trust the numbers. Right, the and, bottom line. Yeah. The bottom line. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, well, numbers are precise. I'll grant you that. But how do you know if they're accurate? You know, who, you don't have to, we only look back to Enron, Volkswagen, all these other companies to know that if uh, the company is, has a culture which uh, is not, uh, lead, does not lead with integrity, uh, you, better, you better look at those numbers a great deal more carefully. So, is so, that, so can you teach, but I guess my question is, is often, can you teach candor and integrity, or is that something that you or, or you know, you're born with or a company is founded on? Uh, it's all about the choices that we make, and I think it's it's about it's about how we start in the world. Uh, I mean, I had uh, amazing role models in my family. My one of my aunts was one of the first women to go to Yale Law School. She graduated. She created uh, the whole family court system uh, in Buffalo because they hadn't had such uh, an institution before to deal with family matters. Um, when I was, five, I guess, I guess about maybe eight years old, uh, my aunt was representing um, black families who were wanting to move into better neighborhoods. And um, anyway, I, rem- I remember supporting her in that even at a young age. Uh, and I was impressed. So for, in that case, Susan, I was impressed not just by her words but by her actions. That's right. So you you had examples. You had great examples, actually, in your background, in your life experience, and in your family. Um, exactly. But but we can all be role models for other people too. They don't have to necessarily be in our families. And uh, there's nothing. I mean, Warren Buffett is uh, he has inspired so many people, including me. Uh, every time, almost every time I turn around, somebody has a Warren Buffett story. At this year's Nantucket Project. Um, there was a, 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 a former football player, and I'm blanking on his name, but 
he had had to go to prison because of some things that, that he did. And while he was there, he studied and worked hard, and he read Warren Buffett's books about investing. So he started teaching himself, and he wrote a letter to Warren, and Warren wrote him back. And uh, and then they actually had a meeting when he got out of prison. Now that, uh, that's a great story. So, so yeah. you know, every day, every day we can be an example of something positive and uh, hopeful in the world. And we get to choose. And we choose the words that we choose to communicate that. That what's, That's, you know, your words are simply our thoughts made visible in the world. Because if we, if we think it, we've got to speak it. And then we've got to speak it in a way so that people can hear it. And if we speak it so that people can not only hear it, but be motivated by it, how powerful is that? That's how you create the future. And that is powerful. So here's a question for you. What, how do you see the impact of technology on our younger generation when we're talking about the importance of words mm-hmm. and language? Well, I am seeing something that's, well, I have this, I have this, I've had this experience recently, um, meeting uh, a young man, he's in his uh, early 30s, and, you know, very astute uh, with technology, runs this uh, international website, uh, very successful, and, um, but he doesn't care about money. He makes money, and he, and he wants to run a very sub- substantial business, but he's not defining himself by money. And technology, I think, gives people today, the millennials, the opportunity to uh, have fluid lives because technology gives, the, gives us the power to create new things. Um, so, so the fellows that I'm working with in the Nantucket Project, they all have these tremendous visions, and they now have access to technology that makes those visions possible. And it's technology that allows us to connect with people that we could have never connected to before to make people possible. So the hierarchical structures in our, you know, the large corporations, our governments, you know, which are gigantic bureaucracies, we're almost, and if anything happens, it's the right thing, it's a miracle. Uh, those, those, those are dinosaurs. Those structures are dinosaurs today. So I, you know, and I agree with you. I think there's such wonderful um, opportunities with technology, and it's like anything else. If you're using it for the right reasons, um, it, it, it can be limitless. <laughs> so you say for the right reasons. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there is, therein lies a very fundamental, we go back to the beginning of our talk where we were talking about balance. And, and we talk about the East and the West. China has become a big superpower now. We've now, it's now a currency, a reserve currency. Um, but what's different about the, and, and maybe, maybe we've just lost it here in the, uh, Western culture, but in the Eastern culture, of course, what does everybody practice? Or yin and yang. There's a balance. Just like you were saying, technology can be made for good and it can be also very harmful if used by the wrong people. So again, getting back to candor and um, and uh, are you going to be an instrument of positive change? Are you going to be an inst- instrument of negative change? Or are you going to opt out and just say, whatever. Let me play my video games and don't bother me. 
And, you know, so much of, you know, when I think about your story and, and your decision to leave Lehman Brothers and, and you were uh, searching for meaning in your work, I guess, um, which I think is, is very important and often leads to, to people taking, uh, taking their gifts and using them for positive reasons, don't you think? Well, I think so. I think so, and I and um, you know there's a there's a saying uh, I, I I simplify it a bit, but you know what are you most afraid of that you will die or that you will never live? Mm, that's a great question. And so uh, I think I feel very fortunate that I was able to uh, you know spend this spend this time um, choosing to live choosing to live. And I think it, you know, it's, isn't it interesting? I find it interesting that uh, a lot of people don't feel that they're that worthwhile, that they have anything to contribute. That's right. Which uh, is, is totally wrong. Totally wrong. I mean, every day, every choice that we make, you know, uh, it can make, uh, and you, you talked about, uh, I think it's, uh, it's really about, I think, have, having a belief that, that you matter and that what, you say, and the choices that you make really do make a difference in the world. And that's getting back to that, you know, what, what we've both said about being original, right? So if, if, if everyone isn't original, then every single person must have something different to offer the world. Yes, yes. And then, and then, and then hopefully that realization uh, connects you more deeply with other people because you begin to see, well, then they have something to offer too. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. what is it that they're offering? And maybe we together we can offer that's it. That's right. Um, Laura, we just have a few minutes left. I, I just wanted to ask you, what, what is one of your fears? What, what, or what is your greatest fear? And how do you manage it in your day-to-day? Um, I, I think... Uh, you know, I have a vision. I have a vision. One of the things I wanted to, to say quickly, Susan, uh, because we talked about this, the research that I've done is so powerful because what I can show is that the uh, measuring candor is, is correlated with superior, significantly superior stock price. So if I have a fear, it's that I really want to get this work out into the world and to um, um, bring uh, this awareness of how powerful our words are that it actually affects, you know, stock markets. Uh, and I want to get that out because um, I've, worked, I've worked hard to, to get to this point, and, I, and I'd, like to see it, uh, I'd like to see it make positive change because the world today is not looking so good. Well, there's there's certainly a great deal of fear, and we could do a whole show on that. Um, but uh, you know, we'll have we'll have to talk about that at another time. But it's so important what you're saying about using words for positive change, and um, a lot of what we hear every day, all day long, is fear based and is negative. So I'm thrilled that you're doing the work that you're doing, and and doing it with. CEOs and companies who can make differences on, you know, large scale, I think will be really important. Well, thank you so much for that. 
Laura, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon, and um, I'll be sure to put out your information on our website, and, and I wish you the best for 2016. Thank you. You too, Susan. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Thanks for joining us, and have a great week.